0: As we continue this series, Behold Your God, today we will look at the account where the Lord calls Moses to take his people out of slavery from Egypt. You know, it was back in March, as we were nearing the end of our study in Philippians, that I began to. Uh, put together the passages that would be part of this series. And I've added to that list since then, but so far we've been just working through the passages that I identified at that time, which, will take us, which has taken us through Genesis and will take us through Exodus. Only the Lord knew back then the multitude of factors that would lead to this passage being the text for this day. Today marks a day in the life of our church where we turn the page into a new chapter. And it has been a comfort and an encouragement to my soul to saturate my heart in this passage this week. And I trust that in the providence of God, this text will launch us into this new chapter in the life of our church with strength and encouragement and confidence as we grow deeper in our understanding of who our God is. If you're there, follow along as I read Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, he called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I surely have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have given heed to their cry because their taskmasters because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now. I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. When God calls you to do something for Him that is beyond your ability, the truth of this text will empower you to step forward in faith and obedience. God called Abraham to, lead his, to leave his family and go to a land that he did not know. God calls Moses here to go to Egypt to take the people out of Egypt. God appointed Joshua to lead the people into the promised land and to conquer the Canaanites that were living there. God anointed Saul and David and Solomon to be rulers over the people. God chose apostles to be his messengers. And he's called every one of us, you and me, to be his ambassadors, proclaiming the gospel of reconciliation to the world. All of that is beyond our ability. But the promise of his presence and the revelation of who God is that's found in this text is what we need to fulfill the good works that he has prepared for us. Perhaps you don't feel like you've been called to an impossible task. You're a parent, you're an employee, you're a student, you're retired. Perhaps you feel like your life is just mundane and you know that the Lord calls you to daily faithfulness, but you don't really feel that pang of inadequacy. Sure, your calling is hard, wrangling toddlers all day long or raising teens or submitting to parents bearing up under the pressures of work, completing your schoolwork assignments, all of those things can make you exhausted at the end of the day, but that's nothing like what God calls Moses to do here. Well, I would challenge that way of thinking. It's true that there are some whom the Lord calls to perform tasks of leadership that are clearly beyond their ability to accomplish on their own, but the mundane responsibilities that make up each and every one of our lives, if we're aiming to glorify God by loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, even the most mundane tasks are impossible for us to do. Anyone can raise a toddler, but only a Spirit-empowered person can raise a toddler to the glory of God. Anyone can learn math, but only a spirit-empowered person can learn math as an expression of their love for God, loving God with their mind. Anyone can perform their tasks at work, but only a spirit-empowered person can love their coworkers as themselves. It does not even your experience tell you this. Even that in those simplest tasks, we battle in our hearts with desires and uh, fears and priorities that often prevent us from keeping God at the center and His glory as the primary goal of all that we do. So whether you're called to lead a nation, or be a missionary, or be a pastor of a church, or raise a family, or pursue education, or engage in some other vocation, You cannot do what God calls you to do without the promise of his presence and the revelation of who your God is that we find in this text. Now, we're going to focus our attention on verses 10 to 15, but first we need to set the context. Last time we considered the life of Joseph and how the Lord used him to to bring the family of Jacob from Canaan to Egypt to rescue them from the famine. But Scripture says that there was another purpose in God's mind for which He was taking them to Egypt when they were just a growing family. Back in Genesis 15, the Lord reiterated His promises to Abraham, which He had first given in Genesis 12. But He adds these details in Genesis 15. He says, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Though the Lord promised the the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, the Lord tells them that there will be a period of 400 years where they won't live in the land. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In the mysterious mind of God, those who were dwelling in the promised land were not yet sufficiently wicked for God to annihilate them. And so he had to remove the nation of Israel, even as a young family, so that they would not integrate into those religions of those nations and be influenced by them. The Lord sent them to Egypt where Egyptians hated, loathed the Hebrews because they hated shepherds. And so there was no possibility of integration between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. And after 400 years, he planned to remove them, redeem them out of Egypt, take them back into the promised land. So this promise in Genesis 15 is five times hundred years or so before our text in Exodus 3. It's not repeated in Scripture, but we can assume that it was handed down generation to generation. And it may well be that after some decades in the land of Egypt that the people started to wonder, maybe this is that period of time that the Lord had spoken to our father Abraham. Well, as we turn from Genesis 50, which we studied last time, into Exodus 1, we learn that the death of, after the death of Joseph and his memory faded in the courts of successive pharaohs, the Egyptians enslaved Israel and used them as laborers to fulfill their building projects. This was toilsome labor, the dry desert, the hot sun made for cruel conditions, to which was added the harsh treatment of the Egyptians who hated and despised the Israelites. And then the racism of the Egyptians and their fear that they would be overtaken population-wise led to Pharaoh imposing infanticide and commanding that the male sons be killed of the Israelites. Well, the Lord caused them to multiply even more, and Pharaoh doubled down again and commanded the people to cast their male sons into the Nile River. Exodus 2 then introduces us to Moses, whose mother refused to cast him headlong into the river, and instead she put him in a basket, and she determined to let God choose what would happen to her son. Well, in God's providence, as three-year-old Moses floated down the river, he ended up getting stuck in some reeds nearby where Pharaoh's daughter was taking a bath. It's remarkably providential that this royal daughter and this condemned child intersected on, in one place on the Nile. But what's beyond comprehension is that the princess of Egypt, whose father had called for the systematic infanticide of the Hebrews, had pity on this boy and decided on the spot to adopt him into her family. It would be the same as if Hitler had had a daughter And this man who had satanic hatred against the Jews allowed her to bring him, uh, bring a Jew into the home. That Moses was adopted into the royal family is nothing short of the hand of God working his purposes in his life. Well, Scripture gives us no details as to those first 39 years of the life of Moses, but we can assume that he was raised in the royal court, treated as a son of Egypt, uh, a prince as it were. He was given all the luxury and education and culture of a royal son. Somewhere along the way, he learned that he was adopted and rescued out of the miserable life of a Hebrew slave. And one would wonder if perhaps he considered that maybe the Lord would use him one day to deliver his people. Well, we're told in the text that at the age of 39 in Exodus 2, he he went out and saw an Egyptian beating a slave, and he killed that Egyptian and, and buried him. And then the next day, he went out again and saw two fellow Hebrews fighting, and so he tried to stop them. And one of them said, Who made you a prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And the text says, Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely this matter has become known. And indeed it had. When Pharaoh found out that Moses had killed an Egyptian, he put out the word to, to get Moses killed. So Moses fled to Midian, which is a cross the Gulf of the Suez, across the Sinai wilderness, and then across again the Gulf of Aqaba. And there he lived in Midian for 40 years as a shepherd. From the life of ease in the royal palace to a life of labor in the wilderness of Midian. He was rejected by the Egyptians. He was rejected by his people. He had neither country or people to call his own. He even memorialized his exile in the name of his son. In Genesis, Exodus twenty-two twenty-two, it says, Then Zipporah, his wife, gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses had no power. He had no influence. There was no one looking for him. There was no one waiting for him. He was the forgotten son of Israel. But God had not forgotten him. Unbeknownst to him, his 40th year in Midian coincided with the completion of the sin of the Amorites in the land of Canaan. And therefore, it it coincided with the 400 years, the completion of the 400 years of the Israelites in Egypt. It was now time for the Lord to fulfill what he had promised to Abraham regarding his purposes for not only Israel, but also the Canaanites, as well as the Egyptians. And so to do this, the Lord chose a man who was rejected, forgotten, powerless, inexperienced, unprepared, and discouraged. Why would God choose such a man to accomplish his purposes on the global stage? Because it was only through such a man that the Lord would get all of the glory. Moses would be able to take exactly zero credit for anything that happened. God would get all the glory, and that's the way it should be. Now, there's a lot of truth that we can draw from verses 1 to 9, but we're going to run past that for our purposes today and just focus in on the most important truth in verses 10 to 15. We're going to consider verses 10 to 15 under two headings. First, the promise of God. The promise of God. And second, the God of promise. The promise of God and the God of promise. In the promise of God, we're going to see the greatest promise the Lord ever gives to his people. And in the God of promise, we're going to see the God whose promises we can trust. Let's begin with the promise of God. Look at verses 10 to 12 again. Lord saying here, therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. In the face of an impossible task, God promises to Moses nothing more and nothing less than his personal presence. Without God, Moses is nothing and can do nothing. But with God at his side, Moses can bring the most powerful nation on earth to its knees and lead his people out of slavery. Consider how the scripture reveals this truth. Look back at Verses 7 to 10, and I want you to pay attention here to the division of responsibilities between God and Moses. Who is going to do what? Verse 7, the Lord said, I surely have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to do good, to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Therefore, furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. It's as if here that the Lord and Moses are on a team project. And the Lord says to Pharaoh, all right, Moses, I'm going to do everything. And at the end, you can give the presentation speech. But I'm going to write the speech. God here says, I'm going to do everything here. You have to do basically nothing. In calling Moses to this monumental task of rescuing a nation from the grip of slavery and leading them to yet another land, the Lord leaves no room for Moses to exercise his education or his skills or his charisma, if he had any. In fact, over in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, in response to Moses' excuse that he's not a public speaker, the Lord says this. Chapter 4, verse 11, The Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Moses only needs to say what God tells him to say and to do what God tells him to do. And the Lord would do the rest. Perhaps you notice here in verse 10 that one of the things he tells Moses to do is to go and bring the people up out of Egypt. And that's similar to what he says over in verse 8, that the Lord would bring them up from the land. Those two statements that use the same English words are two different words in Hebrew, which are virtual synonyms. But put together here, the nuanced difference seems to be that Moses would do nothing but stand at the front of the line and walk in front of the people. Or well, even so, with the limited information Moses has at this point, it's clear that this task is beyond human ability he used to go to egypt he used to stand before pharaoh which may well be someone who he grew up with we don't know somehow pharaoh has to be convinced to let go of the most valuable national resource that he has virtually unlimited human labor and moses is to lead over 1.5 million people to a land occupied by other nations It's no wonder that in verse 11, Moses asks, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons out of Egypt? That is a legitimate question. As Moses considers the task the Lord gives to him, and then he thinks through his resume, he knows he lacks the basic qualifications for the task. Some have tried to say that, well, Moses is perfect for this job because he's a Hebrew and he grew up in the Egyptian court. And so, of course, this is a perfect fit. But that ignores the fact that after murdering an Egyptian and having his head, uh, a bounty put on his head and being rejected by his own people, he lived in Midian totally forgotten for 40 years. There was nothing about Moses that commended him for this leadership role. He was not an orator by his own admission. He was not a political figure with any clout or authority. He had no military experience, certainly no military backing. He had no charisma that drew people to him. It's as uh, as though the Lord was looking on the earth to determine who he would use to accomplish his purposes. And he saw Moses with all of his weaknesses and he said, he's perfect. He won't be able to take any credit. So again, Moses asked the right question. Who am I? And notice what the Lord doesn't say. The Lord doesn't say, oh, come on, Moses. Don't be so humble. You can do this. Remember your education. You were brought up in the court. You know how the system works. You might know some of the people in the court who might give you an ear. You've led sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. You're tough. You're proven. You can do this. I believe in you, Moses. Moses. You know, that's how we tend to encourage ourselves and one another, right? We take someone who feels inadequate for our task and we, we want to build them up. And so we try and convince them, no, 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 you are adequate. You are sufficient. You are deserving and capable. But that's not what the Lord does here. Look at what God says in response to that question. Who am I? Verse 12, certainly I will be with you. It's as if the Lord says here, oh, Oh, no, Moses, you you misunderstand. I did not choose you because of you. I didn't give you this task because of anything that you're capable of. I know you're a nobody. I know you're inadequate. I know you're incapable. I'm calling you to this task, not because of you, but because of me. I will be with you and I will do everything for you and through you. Again, the Lord goes on there. I will be with you and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain. In other words, once Israel has been taken out of Egypt, the way he'll know that God is behind it all is by the fact that Moses and the people will find themselves back at this mountain where they are standing right now. Horeb, which is what the text calls it here, is the same mountain, as is called Mount Sinai. Other passages connect the two and equate them. Now, how would it be a sign that because Moses and the people are there at this mountain? Well, their return would be a sign because the path from Egypt to the land of Canaan does not go anywhere near Horeb. It's a straight line. And when you're traveling with two million people, doing a multi-day detour is not a good idea. But that's exactly what the Lord is going to lead them to because, of course, we know that they end up going a totally different route uh, in the end. So this is the promise of God to Moses. I will be with you. I will be with you. This is the same promise that the Lord made to Joshua at the death of Moses. In Joshua 1, the Lord said to him, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. When the Lord called Gideon many centuries later to deliver Israel from the Midianites, Gideon himself said, "Oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least of Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. And you shall defeat Midian as one man. When the Lord wanted to encourage exiled Israel through the prophet Isaiah, he says in Isaiah forty-one ten, "Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious. Uh, do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand." Then again, in Isaiah 50, uh, forty-three verse two, he says, "When you pass through the waters." I will be with you and through the rivers. They will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Well, after the deportation to Babylon of the southern kingdom, when the people then returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in the face of opposition, the Lord encouraged them through the prophet Haggai saying, I am with you. And later he says again, Take courage, Zerubbabel. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when He commissioned His apostles to go throughout the world, to be His ambassadors, proclaiming the message making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them all He commanded, He undergirds that command with this promise. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. On a more personal note, David reminds us in Psalm 23 that when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we can say to the Lord, I fear no evil for you are with me. In Psalm 139, David sings of the comfort that comes to us when we recognize the inescapable presence of the Lord. He says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. To those who are persecuted, And have lost their possessions or are threatened with loss. The author of Hebrews writes, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have for. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? When the... Apostle Paul was in Corinth and many people were coming to Christ and yet there was opposition. The Lord came to him in a vision and said, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city. Time and time and time again, the Lord encourages and strengthens and motivates his people by saying, I am with you. I am. Be with you. Oh, Christian, do you know that when you feel alone, that you are not really alone? God is with you always. Do you know that when God calls you to serve Him, he, He is with you and He will work through you? No matter how people respond, God will use your faithful obedience to accomplish His purposes. The promise of God's presence gives comfort in the time of sorrow, gives strength in a time of weakness, it gives encouragement in times of difficulty, it gives courage in the face of opposition, and it gives joy when experiencing persecution. You may feel intimidated at work because you're in that slim minority of those who don't embrace the spirit of the age. But with God at your side, you are in the majority. You may be fearful of losing family relationships because you're not going to celebrate immorality. But with God, you will never be alone because you're part of His family. You may be timid at school because everybody around you believes that life came from non-life. And anyone who says otherwise is a religious nut. But with God at your side, you can confidently stand on the truth and stand against popular myths. No matter what sphere of life you're in, the Lord has placed you there as His man or His woman to be His representative, standing up for truth, justice, and righteousness. But He does so with a promise that you are not alone, that He is with you, And he will not fail you. He will not leave you or forsake you. But in fact, he will work through you and he will accomplish his purposes. All you need to do is trust in him and walk in faith and obedience. This is the promise of God to Moses. And it's the promise that he makes to all people, that he is with us. He is with us. Next, we see the God of promise. First, the promise of God, then the God of promise. Look at verses 13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Here, the Lord reveals himself as the self-existing, unchanging God. Moses here accepts the promise of God's presence, but he realizes that there's a vital issue he needs to settle. It's likely, he thinks, that when he goes to the people and he tells them that he's on a mission from God, that they're going to ask him, well, who is this God? And so he creates this hypothetical situation that he presents to the Lord so he can get the answer so that he's ready to give it if the question comes up. Now think about this. Israel has been in Egypt surrounded by Egypt's pantheon of gods for 400 years. There has never been up to this point a written revelation from God. All they knew about God was what was handed down from Noah to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then on down to further generations until this day. In chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 9, it tells us that the people groaned and cried out in their affliction, but you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't th- say that they groaned and they cried out to God. It seems to imply that they just cried out in the open air, hoping that somebody, anybody would listen. And that's further implied by the fact that it says that the cr- their cries rose up to God rather than being shot directly to Him. At the same time, chapter 1 tells us that the midwives charged with killing the male sons of Israel refused to do it because they feared God. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, when the Lord identifies himself to Moses, he says, I am the God of your father, which seems to refer to Moses' biological father, who was of the tribe of Levi. And so the point is that while the nation as a whole does not seem to have been faithful worshipers of Yahweh at this time, there were some who were. So when Moses would come along and declare again to be on God's mission, it would be natural for them to ask about this God that he claims to serve. Now listen carefully, the question Moses asks or anticipates is not a question of identity. Identity. He does not expect them to ask, who is this God? If that was the question then the answer would be simple. I'm on a mission for Yahweh, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Yahweh was a familiar and distinct name and Moses didn't need to ask the Lord how should he distinguish him from any of the other gods. So the question what is his name is not asking what title do we call this God but rather what is his character. The name of God speaks to his character. In Genesis 16, when the Lord ministered to Hagar the first time that she was kicked out of Abraham's home, it says, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. That's the name El Roy that's translated the God who sees. This name speaks to his care for those who are suffering. In Genesis 17, the Lord comes to Abraham and says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. This name speaks to His power. In Genesis 22:14, 14, He is the God who provides. Yahweh Yireh, or often mispronounced Jehovah Jireh. Isaiah 40, verse 25 says, To whom then will you liken me that I would be as equal, says the Holy One. He is the Holy One, Kadosh. And on and on we could go. There's some 15 to 20 names of God in Scripture that reveal his character. They're not there for the purpose of identity, but rather for revealing what this God is like. And so when Moses comes to the people, he anticipates that they're going to ask and want to know what is the character of this God who's planning to deliver us. In fact, turn over to Exodus chapter 5 to further think about how God's name is a revelation of his character. In Exodus 5, Moses is now going down to Pharaoh. He seeks permission from Pharaoh to leave Egypt with the people to worship out in the wilderness. And Pharaoh responds by making the labor of the people even more difficult. And so in verse 22, Moses complains to God and he says, Oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name? He has done harm to this people and you have not delivered this people at all. Ouch. (laughs) But look at what the Lord says, starting in verse one of chapter six. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for under compulsion, he will let them go. And under compulsion, he will drive them out of this land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El I? But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. What this means is not that nobody prior to this knew the name Yahweh. The name Yahweh is used over 150 times in the book of Genesis. They knew that name. Now, what this means is they did not experience the significance of that name. Most of the names of God that we find in Scripture, including the ones that I mentioned earlier, are given to God, ascribed to God after he has worked in some way and manifested that that character to his people. But the name Yahweh, the Lord had long before revealed as his name, but now they were about to experience what that name really means. And in the subsequent verses there in Exodus 6, the Lord explains how he will display his name or himself as Yahweh, which is basically by fulfilling his covenant and redeeming the people out of the land of Egypt. Coming back to chapter 3, verse 14, Moses again asks, What name shall I give to them? What kind of God will you prove yourself to be? Look again at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent Me to you. I am is the standard stative verb in Hebrew, hayah, and it is the second most common Verb in the Old Testament used over 3,000 times. In the infinitive, it means to be. In the third person, it means he is. In the past tense, I was. In the future tense, I will be. Now, get this. Uh, This is important. One principle of the Hebrew language is that there is no tense in the grammar. There's no past, present, or future tense. And so how you translate something will depend entirely on the context. And so it's been said that there are nine ways this self-revelation from God could be translated. I was who I was. I was who I am. I was who I will be. I am who I was. I am who I am. I am who I will be. I will be who I was. I will be who I am. Or I will be who I will be be. Now the truth is all of those are true of God. And for the sake of clarity, let's just condense them down to the middle three. I am who I was, which is to say that God is the same today as he was in the past. I am who I am. He is self-existing and utterly independent. I am who I will be, that he is who he will always be. He will never change. For God to declare himself to be the I am is to say that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now consider further what God is telling us about himself. I am means that God is self-existing. He has aseity, meaning he has life in himself. He does not depend on anyone or anything outside of himself in order to exist. He is uncreated self-sufficient, He is the inexhaustible source of life for all things. And so as the Scripture says that He gives life and breath to all men, and in Him we live and move and have our being. I am means that because God is self-existing and He's the inexhaustible source of all things, He has therefore the power and control over all things. Again, chapter 4, verse 11, the Lord said, Who made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7 says, I am Yahweh. There is no other. I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these Further, I am means that God is immutable, which means he is unchanging. He has always been what he is and he will always be what he is. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, Yahweh, do not change. There is no change in God's character. There's no change in God's will. All that is in God is God and all that God is defines deity. He cannot become more than He is and He cannot become less than He is. Nothing can be added to Him. Nothing can be taken away from Him. He does not change His mind or His will or His desires. Now here's why this matters to us. Because God is self-existing, because God is powerful, because God is unchanging, that means He is faithful to His promises. Once He makes a promise, The will that gave birth to that promise cannot change. Once He makes a promise, the full strength of His power is directed at fulfilling that promise. Once He makes a promise, as the Lord and owner of all things, He calls together all the resources needed to accomplish that promise. He is the I Am who always fulfills His promises. Again, it was over 500 years before this time That the Lord promised Abraham that his descendants would be oppressed in in a foreign land. But after 400 years, the Lord would bring them back into the promised land. And so here, the Lord is saying to Moses, if the people want to know who or what kind of God has sent you, tell them that that the I am has sent you. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. The God who made those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come to to make good on those promises. I am that I am. Now look again at verse 15. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all. Generations. God here makes a direct link between I am and Yahweh. As a reminder, whenever you see the word Lord in all caps in Scripture, the Hebrew behind that is Yahweh and it does not mean Lord. The word Adonai in Hebrew means Lord, and because of an ancient superstition where they didn't want to say the name Yahweh when the vowel pointings were added to the Hebrew consonants. The vowel pointings for Adonai were added to Yahweh to produce the name Jehovah. As well, Yahweh is translated as Kyrios in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is uh, what was developed before the time of Christ. And Kyrios is the Greek word for Lord. So our English translations more more follow the Greek translation of the Old Testament than they follow the Hebrew in that sense. Now, while there's some debate about this, some Hebrew scholars would say that Yahweh is derived from the third person of I am, such that it means He is. And that it would make sense. And that would make sense of what the Lord says here. I am, which is something only the Lord can say, is Yahweh. He is, which is what we can say. He is the one who has sent Moses to them. Now notice there at the end of the verse where he says, this is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generation. Literally that says, roughly translated, this is my remembrance from generation to generation in fact the exact same words are found in Psalm 135 verse 13 where it says your name O Lord is everlasting your remembrance O Lord through all throughout all generations. Name and remembrance are used as synonyms in both of those passages, he, Exodus 3:14 and Psalm 135 verse 13. God intends that his name I am be kept in the consciousness of his people now unto eternity. And so every time we say Yahweh, or even if we're translating it as Lord, we are affirming He is. He is the I Am. The Lord will prove Himself faithful to His promises by being who He is and never changing. He will exert Himself in the fulfillment of His promises for the sake of His name. This is the God. This is the God of promise who that Moses is to declare to the people of Israel. This is the God of promise, that the people will come to experience and know for themselves. And if you know your Bible, you know that as we read on through the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and then when we get into the historical books of Joshua and Judges and work our way all the way through the prophets, there is nothing but proof after proof, demonstration after demonstration, validation after validation that God is the great I Am who fulfills all of His promises. It's no wonder then that when writing to Jews to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, which is to say God Himself, the Apostle John in his Gospel emphasizes that Jesus is The I am. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes the following declarations. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. More directly, when Jesus was speaking with the Pharisees, in John 8, 58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. Am. And they knew exactly what he said because they picked up stones to throw at him. When they came to the garden to arrest Jesus the night of his before his crucifixion, he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And John 18:5 records Jesus' answer: I am. And that declaration was so powerful that the text says, so when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. What's amazing about that is not that they drew back and fell in the presence of of God in the flesh. What's amazing is that they got back up and arrested him. (laughs) The author of Hebrews adds this declaration. In Hebrews 13, 6, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the I Am. Here in Exodus 3, the Lord reveals himself as the I Am in anticipation of his predetermined and prophesied plan to redeem his people out of Egypt from slavery to bring them into the promised land where he would be their God and they would be His people. What was promised hundreds of years earlier would be fulfilled by the faithful I Am. In the New Testament, Jesus reveals Himself to be the I Am, who has come in the flesh to fulfill the predetermined and prophesied plan to redeem His people from their sin, and to bring them into His eternal kingdom where He would be their God and they would be His people. Before time began, God decreed a plan to put His glory on display by creating a world where mankind would rebel and be deserving of His wrath. But the Lord would display the glory of His name by coming into that world to take upon Himself the wrath that sinners deserve such that He could offer forgiveness of sin and redemption to all who believe. And the glory of God's justice would be displayed on the cross right alongside the glory of God's grace and kindness and love, which would resound around the globe. That plan was then increasingly revealed to mankind starting in Genesis 3.15 with a promise of the seed of the woman. And then in Genesis 22 with a promise of a provided substitute. And then in 2 Samuel 7, with the promise of an everlasting Davidic kingdom. And Psalm 2, with the promise of the defeat of God's enemies. And Isaiah 53, with the promise of the suffering servant who would die and rise for his people. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus was born of a woman. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He lived the life that only God the Son could live, perfectly obeying the laws of men. He perfectly loved God with all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength. He perfectly loved His neighbor as Himself. Yet He was despised and rejected and crucified, Whereas He hung on the cross, the wrath of God came down on Him in the place of sinners. And having died and been buried, on the third day, God raised Him from the dead, sealing His victory over sin and death. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. And he calls all people to turn from their rebellion and their hostility and to believe on him who is the Savior of the world. And all those who trust in him will receive the full and complete remission of their sins, reconciliation with God, and an eternal inheritance in God's kingdom. Jesus not only declared himself to be the I Am, but He proved it by accomplishing the redemption of His people from their sin and guaranteeing our eternal presence in the heaven and on the new earth. So when Jesus promises, I will build my church, He will be faithful to fulfill that promise. When He promises to be with us always as we are going out, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, he will be faithful to fulfill that promise. When he promises to work all things together for good for those who love him, he will be faithful to that promise. When he promises to come back and to take us to himself, he will be faithful to keep that promise. So beloved, what has God called you to do in your life today? No matter how mundane or significant you believe your calling to be, Know that with the I Am at your side, you can simply trust and obey Him. You can glorify Him and He will work through you and accomplish His purposes. Perhaps there's someone who's afraid of taking a step of faith because you don't know how it will work out. You don't know how God can really use you will know that the I am is with you wherever you go and in whatever you do. Do you need to talk to a coworker or family member or a friend about Christ? The I am is with you. Do you need to stand up for what is true and right? The I am is with you. Is the Lord directing you to ministry or missions? The I am is with you. Church, as as much as we each have our own individual callings, we have a collective calling by our head, the chief shepherd, the, the head of the church. He's given us a mission. He's called us to exalt Him and to worship Him. He's called us to make disciples and He's called us to reach the lost together. He's placed us here in Columbia, Maryland, at this time. The harvest is plentiful. We just need to step forward in faith and obedience, proclaiming Christ to each other and to the world. We leave the results to Him, but let's give ourselves in faithful obedience to all that the I Am calls us to do, trusting that He is with us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we reflect on this, there's so much more that needs to be said as we just scratch the surface of Your self-revelation. But Lord, we give you praise and glory because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you have made promises to us, you promise that we can be confident that you will fulfill them. You have exerted yourself already as we see in the redemption of sinners through Christ. And there are yet many more promises that we long to see fulfilled. Not the least of all is the return of Christ. But Lord, until that day comes, when our Savior comes, would you find us faithful? Lord, each one of us in our lives, in our homes, whatever sphere you've placed us in, let us not shrink back in fear. Let us be bold for Christ, knowing that you are with us. And Lord, we trust that you will work and take our meager efforts. You will save those whom you desire to save. You will harden those whom you desire to harden. You will build your church. You will accomplish your purposes. But Lord, let us be faithful stewards, serving you in proclaiming Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.